Thank you, David and Sharon, for that lovely reminder of the Lord Jesus' cross, his sacrifice for us. We're continuing in our study of um, Philippians. So turn, please, to Philippians chapter 4, and actually we'll finish, Lord willing, the um, letter of Paul to the Philippians. There were two special encouragements from the word in our study last week. Paul exhorted the believers. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I took that as an application from from the message and um, recalled George Mueller having written, the chief business of every day is first of all to seek to be truly at rest and happy in God. Make that our priority, make that our one goal for the day, to to rejoice in the Lord and the day will have been worth living. The second um, encouragement was Paul's promise in uh, Philippians 4.9 where he said, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Perhaps the most precious prize the Lord Jesus one for sinners on the old rugged cross was the, uh, the presence of God, the God of peace with us. Well, we are going to look at the remainder of the letter, uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 23, under three, uh, by answering three questions. What was the secret of Paul's contentment in difficult situations? difficult circumstances, uh, to who actually received the gift that the Philippians gave, and then who are the saints to whom Paul sent his final greetings? Who are the saints? So let's, um, let's read our passage. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, to God and Father be glory, forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. 
All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Lord, we pray again for your um, accompanying this word with power. We pray again that you would change our lives. We're so grateful for your word and for your instruction and your power to your presence especially. In Jesus' name, amen. What was the secret of Paul's contentment in these difficult circumstances that he endured in his ministry? That's great, thank you. Paul was thrilled by the Philippians' concern for him, their fresh concern. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. He rejoiced in the Lord. He had instructed the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. So he's doing what he taught. He commended the Philippians for their renewed interest in his welfare. They, they cared for Paul. They cared very deeply for him because uh, he loved them. He poured his life into their lives and their natural response was to, um, to love him in return. So they had uh, they had this care for Paul, but they didn't have the opportunity to, to support him. Perhaps they were out of communication with Paul. They didn't know where to send a gift. But um, just from verse 10, if we were to sum up that verse, if we were to sum up that chapter 4, if we were to sum up the entire letter to the Philippians in two words, it would be, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your care for me. Paul didn't speak in reference to his need. In verse 11, he didn't want to call attention to his poverty. That's not my reason for writing to you, Philippians. That's not the occasion of my writing to, um, uh, to broadcast my need. And he certainly wasn't asking the Philippians for another gift. That would be very un-Paul-like, uh, un un-Christ-like. In his travels, in his wide range of experiences, Paul had learned contentment. He had acquired that habit. McIntosh wrote, Paul had to learn this. It was a, it was a learned response. It was not natural to him, and most surely he never learned it at the feet of Gamaliel. He had to be thoroughly broken down at the feet of Jesus of Nazareth before he could say from his heart, I am content. He had to ponder the meaning of those words, my grace is sufficient for you, before he could say, before he could boast in his infirmities. Paul says, um, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. That word content means, um, really, literally means self-sufficient, adequate, needing no assistance. The apostle could walk into a um, modern-day Walmart or Costco or, or Best Buy and walk out again as satisfied as he'd walked in. He had no needs. The Lord has used a variety of ways to 
support his followers. He gave shoes that didn't wear out. He um, sent manna from heaven. There was a bin of flour that wouldn't empty, a jar of oil that would not run out. The Lord Jesus broke loaves and fishes and gave them uh, miraculously to thousands. Paul says in, um, in verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. To be abased is to be humbled, is to um, be humiliated. We read that, um, that word in the original used also in chapter 2, verse 8, where the Lord Jesus humbled himself. Paul knew how to be humbled. And he knew how to abound. The word there, uh, to be abundantly furnished, as with um, material benefits. The um, Bible translator Wiest phrases this um, this way. He says, I know how to discipline myself in lowly circumstances, and I know how to conduct myself when I have more than enough. Paul said, I know how to be, uh, let's see, everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, that is, uh, to be well-fed. I know how to be well-fed. I know how to be hungry. It was on the voyage um, before his shipwreck in Malta that Paul and the crew fasted for 14 days. Um, yeah, they went without food. Paul knew what it meant to be hungry. And then a uh, second time, Paul says, both to abound, he uses that word again, to, to be well furnished and to suffer need. That is to come short, to fail, to be in want. After having been beaten and um, put in an inner prison and his feet placed in stocks, Paul could sing praise to the Lord. That was his, uh, his welcome to Philippi, if you will. How many of us can sing as loudly in our abundance as Paul in his affliction? We seek to protect ourselves from adversity, from hunger, from humiliation, from homelessness. We pay premiums monthly for homeowners, insurance, life insurance, personal property insurance, health insurance, all to shield us from the calamities of life. What would happen tomorrow if they all disappeared? What would happen if the bottom finally dropped out of Social Security? Well, we'd have to trust the Lord more. Is it only missionaries and apostles that the Lord has called to suffer affliction? Are there not life lessons that we can learn in no other way than through suffering? Well, one large lesson is this secret Paul reveals, the secret of contentment. He says, um, I have learned, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. It's a different word than what he used in verse 11. In verse 11, he learned through experience in verse 12, 
the word carries the idea of initiation, that uh, Paul had been initiated into some mystery. He'd, been, uh, he'd learned a secret. And as, uh, as always the case with Paul, he doesn't keep mysteries mysterious, mysterious. He doesn't keep secrets secret, but he broadcasts them. He tells people about them. And so um, to hear Paul's secret, I'd like to introduce you to a missionary named Cyril Brooks and ask Cyril to tell us this, um, the secret of contentment. Cyril and Anna Brooks <clears throat> were commended by their church to the Lord's work in the Philippines back in 1922. In 1942, the Japanese um, took over the Philippines. They, uh, they occupied the Philippines. In 1944, the Japanese knocked on the Brooks door and said, uh, we're taking you to a prison camp. They didn't call it a prison camp. They called it um, protective custody. Um, and so they languished uh, Cyril and his wife, Anna, and their two sons and their daughter were in this prison camp for months. And so we pick up here in, uh, in Cyril's account from his uh, autobiography. It was during those days that I passed through a spiritual turmoil. It was bad enough to be perpetually hungry, but to also see my children hungry and not complaining was hard. Then to see my wife's feet and legs puffed with beriberi, a malnutrition disease, was added trial. We elevated the feet of her bed to help circulation, and she frequently went to the hospital for vitamin injections. At that time, one verse came repeatedly to mind, be content with such things as you have. It seemed I could not evade it. In the middle of the night, I would wake up and be content with such things as you have would come to mind. But what did I have to be content with? An empty stomach, an ailing wife, hungry children, little strength of energy because of loss of weight. My weight was down to 105 pounds. My wife's uh, 85. We had no idea what was happening to our home and few possessions. There was no communication with friends and loved ones. No certainty that we would come out of this alive, be content with all things. I was too pious to voice the inward rebellion, but it did seem as if the Lord was asking a bit too much just then. There flashed across the screen of memory what the Apostle Paul wrote, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The, my inward reaction was that Paul was an apostle, an exceptional Christian, which I am not. But then I had to face the fact that Paul wrote those words when he was in prison in Rome. Be content with what you have. It seemed that there was a mental block which stopped the quotation at that point. Such things as you have seemed almost to be a minus quantity. Really, I did want to be content, but couldn't it be postponed until after our release? No, 
I had to learn the lesson of contentment there and under those circumstances. This seemed to go on for some time until I just told the Lord, if you want me to be content, you'll have to do it for, uh, you'll have to do it, I can't. Then it seemed as if I was at the point where I could go on to the rest of the verse, for he hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those familiar words then glowed with a new light. God wasn't asking me to be content with things, with circumstances, but with himself. We can never be content with things, for they are only temporary and transient. In this world, we can never be satisfied with our circumstances. It is only in Christ that we can find contentment. That's how Paul learned this difficult lesson. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His grace is always sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Like the old hymn of our childhood days, I have Christ, what want I more? No matter what the circumstances may be, Christ is enough the heart and mind to fill. He alone can satisfy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What was, um, what was the secret that Paul revealed? Well, it's uh, in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? Bill, uh, Bill McDonald wrote um, wrote in his one day at a time. He wrote on this verse, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." It's an easy verse to misunderstand. We read it and immediately think of hundreds, hundreds of things that we can't do. In the physical realm, for instance, we think of some ridiculous stunt requiring superhuman power, or we think of some great mental achievement that lies far beyond us, so the words become a torture to us instead of a comfort. What the verse actually means is, of course, that the Lord will give us power to do anything he wants us to do. Within the circle of his will, there are no impossibilities. Peter knew this secret. Peter knew. He knew that left to himself, he couldn't walk on water. But he also knew that if the Lord told him to do it, then he could do it. As soon as Jesus said, come, Peter got out of the boat and strode across the water to him. Ordinarily, a mountain will not slide into the sea at my command. But if that mountain stands between me and the accomplishment of God's will, then I can say, be removed, and it will. What it boils down to is that God's commands are his enablements. Therefore, he will provide strength to bear any trial. He will enable me to resist every temptation and conquer every habit. He will strengthen me to have a clean thought life, to have pure motives, and to always do the things that please his heart. If I'm not getting the strength to accomplish something, if I'm threatened with physical, mental, or emotional collapse, then I may well question if I've missed his will and am seeking my own desires. It is possible to do work for God that may not be the work of God. Such work does not carry the promise of his power. So it's important to know that we are moving forward in the current of his plans. Then we can have 
the joyous confidence that his, that his grace will sustain and empower us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that's only half the secret. <clears throat> Cyril Brooks quoted several times, be content with such things as you have. And it wasn't until later that he gave the completion of that verse, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not just Jesus' power that we have to draw on, but his very presence that we can rely on. Power accompanies the Lord's presence. We see that during his earthly ministry, his uh, three years ministering on earth, that his, um, his presence accompanied his, I'm sorry, his power accompanied his presence. And that really, uh, again, points back to that um, uh, verse 9, Philippians 4, 9, the God of peace will be with you. It's not just the power, it's his presence who is with us. When we abide in the presence of the Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that he's with us, then we become content. We become independent of our circumstances. Another missionary, Anthony Norris Groves, served as a missionary to Baghdad in the early, early 1800s. He suffered severe privation, that is, the lack of things that we acknowledge are necessities in our life. He, he didn't have them. In fact, his, um, his furniture was reduced to a mat on the floor and uh, he used that to sit on during the day. He would lie on it for his bed at night and then he had a cloak that he would use for his, um, uh, for his blanket. And he wrote, I cannot tell you how comfortable it is to be independent of everything but the sunshine of the Lord's face. Independent of everything but the sunshine of the Lord's face. The apostle gave the secret of his contentment to the Philippians and to us. The Lord's commandments are the Lord's enablements. He will not call on us to accomplish a task without providing the power to do it, the needed grace. God gives us strength to endure the hungering and the need. Not only so, but his presence assures us that he feels every pain that we feel. He is here with us. He's with us in our, our uh, deprivation, our, our pain, our suffering. Do you, uh, like I do sometimes, too often feel the need for some earthly material reward, some compensation? Abraham declined a reward from the king of Sodom. The, um, uh, there were kings who descended on the, uh, the land and uh, defeated uh, these other four kings, which wouldn't have been such a trial for Abraham, but his, um, uh, his nephew Lot was captured. And so 
Abraham uh, with 318 men came and overthrew the, uh, the captors. The king of Sodom was grateful. Uh, he said, um, take your reward. Abraham declined. He said, I won't take a, a shoe latchet from, from you that uh, you might say that you made me rich. God alone is, um, is my reward. And so the Lord told him in a vision, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Abraham may have been thinking that, um, that he'd lost something in the battle. He may have been feeling that um, that he needed some reward, some compensation. And the Lord told him, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Abraham, you have me. King David knew what it was to be abased and to abound. He wrote, O Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, yes, I have a good inheritance. The Lord was his inheritance, and he had a good inheritance. The Lord's power and the realization of the Lord's presence is the secret of Paul's contentment. What of the Philippians' gift to Paul? Was it unnecessary? Was Paul indicating through his sufficiency that he didn't need their gift? Let's read verse 14. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Uh, the apostle had rejoiced greatly in their, their care for him. And the Philippians had shown this care by their gift. So Paul introduces this verse by saying, nevertheless, he says, in spite of my sufficiency, in spite of my contentment, you have done well. Paul no, in, no, in no way minimizes the value of their gift or the fitness of their gift or the sacrifice that the Philippians made. They shared with Paul's distress. They shared his burden, his affliction financially. They obeyed the instruction of Hebrews 13.3 to remember the prisoners as if chained with them. So uh, the first description that we'd use of the Philippians giving is they gave sympathetically. The Philippians had a history of giving. In verse 14, I'm sorry, in verse 15, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So the Philippians gave not only sympathetically, but they gave early. It's a, Paul says in the beginning of the gospel, that outreach to Philippi, the, um, uh, the moving on to um, out of Macedonia, the Philippians were there giving. They gave sympathetically, they gave early, they gave boldly. Paul says, uh, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, <clears throat> but you only. 
The Philippians didn't wait for prompting from the believers in Corinth. They didn't, um, they didn't wait for a recommendation from another church. They gave to Paul. They lived close enough to the Lord that he could direct their giving. The Philippians gave sympathetically, they gave early, they gave boldly, and they gave repeatedly, Paul said um, in verse 16, even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Once and again, that's twice. And as short a time as Paul was in Thessalonica, that's significant that they would, uh, they would be so thoughtful, so caring of Paul. <coughs> There's a spiritual side to the Philippians' gift. Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. There was a present tense to their giving. Paul sought fruit. He sought a profit to be credited to their account. He would write the Corinthians years earlier, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Paul is talking about the, um, the Corinthians giving. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. The present tense of uh, the spiritual giving um, that the Philippians gave was um, that the Lord would give an increased capacity for their giving. Because they, they gave sympathetically, they gave sacrificially to Paul, the Lord would uh, enable them to give even more. It, uh, that was true with the Corinthians, and uh, that's true here as Paul seeks fruit to abound to their account. God would multiply seed. He'd give a greater opportunity and a, a more abundant result because of their liberal giving. And he would increase the fruits of righteousness. As the Corinthians increased in generosity, the Lord would increase their reward. And this really points to the future, to the um, judgment seat of Christ, where the, the gift would have been accounted to the Philippians and um, the, uh, the Philippians would have enjoyed that well done at the judgment seat of Christ. Future, present and future tense. Paul uses that word abound for the third time in verse 18. He says, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling uh, sweet aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Really, <clears throat> the gift that Paul received from Epaphroditus was the occasion for writing the letter. It was the, um, the, uh, the prompting for writing. 
But how does Paul describe the gift? He calls it a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. There is one other instance where the Holy Spirit uses this combination of words, and it is in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, describing the Lord Jesus. Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul dignified the gift of the Philippian believers um, by describing what it meant to God. Paul then assured the, um, the Philippians of God's future provision because they had shared in Paul's distress, they may have risked financial trouble endangering their livelihood. So Paul tells them in verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God would supply their need, not out of his riches, but according to them. Bill MacDonald quotes another commentator on this verse. He compares this verse to a check drawn from a bank. He says, um, my God is the name of the banker. Shall supply is the promise to pay. All your need is the value of the check. According to his riches is the capital of the bank. In glory is the address of the bank, and by Jesus Christ is the signature on the check. The Lord would supply the need of these Philippian believers, though they gave sacrificially. And so it causes Paul to, to overflow in praise to the Lord. We, um, uh, we praise the Lord this morning in our worship meeting. And uh, Paul praises him here. He says, now to our, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those words, forever and ever, literally, uh, ages to ages, mean without ceasing, ever increasing through the ages. We, uh, we who know the Lord Jesus and who um, enjoy the worship uh, week by week realize in our hearts that his glory is increasing week by week. And it's not um, an exaggeration to, to say that through the ages, the Lord will uh, increase in glory as, um, as we discover his attributes, his kindness, his love toward us. We've seen this morning the apostle revealing the secret of his contentment. We've shown that um, he is a recipient of the Philippians gift. He appreciates that, but really it was God who was the primary recipient. And so um, Paul closes with a farewell with um, 
Greetings to the saints. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Who are the saints? Well, in some religious organizations, they require years of scrutiny, perhaps even centuries of uh, research to bestow sainthood on a person. This person, they say, has an exceptional degree of holiness or likeness or closeness to God. Is this who Paul had in mind? Absolutely not. The saints were, as uh, he describes them, the brethren who are with me. They're, they're equivalent. The, um, uh, the saints are, are brethren. Well, how does one become a saint then? How did one become a saint in Paul's day? The same way that a sinner becomes a saint today. And we read, uh, we read that in Colossians 1, starting at verse 19, for example. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is, in Christ Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, uh, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You're wondering how a person becomes a saint today? Well, there are three key elements that Paul raises in this um, portion of scripture in Colossians 1, 19 through 23. The first is that we, by natural birth, are alienated from God. We're enemies of God. He says so. Um, in our minds, by our wicked works, we uh, we're estranged from God. We have no, um, nothing to do with God. The second is that Jesus Christ made peace through his blood, through the blood of his cross. That is, um, that is astounding, becomes more astounding as time passes. Jesus would make peace through the blood, through his own blood. And the third, we are alienated. Jesus has made peace. We, uh, number three, we can enter into that peace through faith, through faith in his work, not our work, not our self-righteousness, but to, um, to trust in his work for the, the um, eternal safety of our souls. By nature, we're alienated from God by our wickedness, by his death on the cross, by grace, Jesus has made peace. By faith, we can enter into that peace. And then uh, in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What is it that makes the Savior's presence such a delight? As, um, as I travel along earth's road, as I contemplate 
uh, eternity with him, what is it that makes his presence such a delight? Well, grace, his grace. He esteemed me, that is, he valued me better than himself on the cross. And even now, even today, he continues to seek my best. Maybe through abundance, maybe through need, but guaranteed the Lord Jesus continues to seek my best today on earth. And he satisfies me with his power and his presence. Let's pray. We do praise you, Lord, for your care for us, um, that you offer us this contentment um, through not just your power in uh, enduring trials and, um, and uh, difficulties, but even more by your promised presence with us. What a joy. What a, um, what a resource to have you here at, uh, at our side. We pray, Lord, as, um, as we go through this week, we would rely on that presence. We would acknowledge you and uh, seek to please you in the things that we say and do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.